Take your Bibles again, turn back to John chapter 3. John 3. John chapter 3. One of the things that uh, we were able to do when we were in Alaska this last week was to be able to go on what is called a glacier cruise. It was a one-day, about five-hour cruise where they take the glaciers and be able to see some of these things that were there. And and for us, it was an all-new thing. And a lot of the people that were obviously on the boat, this is the first time they had been there and the like. And so there was a lot of excitement and energy that uh, was there from certain of the people. But it was kind of a, a difficult day to see things because it was raining and it was cloudy. And uh, the boat, the windows would fog over. So you'd have to go outside just to be able to see uh, anything if you wanted to uh, be able to see anything. But the thing with uh, all that we saw with these glaciers and you know, I was surprised that glaciers truly are blue. Uh, you have, you know, the white and they look kind of blue. They are blue uh, when you get up close to them and to be able to see all the creatures that were there. We saw sea lions, we saw a humpback whale, we were able to see uh, some sea otters and the like. And, and so we were able to see all these creatures and beautiful mountains with the glaciers coming off of them and come right up to them and the like. And you're in the boat and there's certain people there that are just sitting on their phones you know you're by these glaciers and whatever else and they're just doing this and and uh then there's others who are in the center of the boat and they're just sitting there playing cards they haven't done anything they aren't looking at anything and you're like really now i figured out most of those were the tour guides they'd been on this like 95 times and and so they were those individuals that were just you're just like i can't believe you're doing this and then you realize okay they've probably seen this uh, uh two or three times in the last week and and for them it's nothing new and as i looked at this passage in john chapter 3 i kind of got that feeling that those people had of seeing a passage of scripture over and over and over again and kind of being well, okay, I already know this, seen this, done this, kind of bored with it. Because most people could come to this passage and get to John 3 and verse 16, and they've kind of heard this if they've been anywhere at all. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And for me to suddenly say, we're going to preach on John chapter 3, for many people are like, well, I already know this. You know, I'm going to check out. What I'm going to ask you this morning is please do not check out, okay? Because there are things here that you may renew in your understanding. There may be some things that you hadn't connected before, but uh, we need to be able to see what is going on in this passage in John chapter 3, why it was included in our Bible. Uh, But we're going to find out uh, this answer. How does a person get to heaven? Ultimately this, you have to, the statement in using it from here, uh, ye must or you must be born again. You look at this story and it uh, starts off with an individual by the name of Nicodemus who has uh, all the human, well, the human advantages of being able to get to heaven. If you think about what Nicodemus was, he was an individual who was born a Jew. For the Jews, they thought because of their family line, they were descendants of Abraham. Uh, They were individuals who had seen God at different times. He had given them their scripture, the Old Testament scriptures. And because of that, they thought that they were individuals blessed because of their race. 
that they were born to the right family. You know, the rest of the world didn't have these advantages. They didn't know what God said. They didn't have a temple to worship the one true God. Uh, they didn't have any of these things. And so you had the Jews coming from a perspective that they were okay because of their family. You find that Nicodemus there in verse 1, that he's a ruler of the Jews. He's not only a ruler of the Jews, uh, or in a sense he's Jewish, Okay, he seems to be from the right family line. Uh, he's also a ruler of the Jews. This meant that he was a member of the Sanhedrin. See, the nation of Israel didn't have their own government at this time. The Romans ruled. But their ruling body for their religion was really what ruled over them. They had a body of 70 individuals. They were made up of priests, uh, Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes. Uh, they got together and argued much like our Congress does. They never agreed on anything except when they, at times as you read the scripture, they agreed on disagreeing with Christ. Uh, but for the most part, they argued back and forth. But what you find is Nicodemus is one of these rulers. He's a Pharisee. Now for us uh, in our, our culture and what we would use that term Pharisee, it's kind of almost a bad word. You know, you don't want to call somebody a Pharisee because, you know, that seems to be a derogatory term. But back in the culture of the Jews, if you were a Pharisee, people thought if there's anybody that's going to make it with God, it's the Pharisees. They were the most, we'd put it in the, the, the quotations, they were the most religious individuals you could find. They were individuals uh, that even the Lord acknowledged by his statement that they were individuals by their life they lived better than anybody else matthew chapter 5 and verse 20 jesus said uh, that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and pharisees ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven i mean they're acknowledged yes these individuals are righteous in the sense that they live better than other people I mean, the Lord recognized the Pharisees and their standing. You think later of an individual who was a Pharisee, who wrote most of our New Testament, a man by the name of Saul, who eventually became known as Paul. He wrote about his life. He had been a ruler of the Jews, a Pharisee, and he made this statement about his thinking when he was a Pharisee. He said this, Though I might have confidence in the flesh and my abilities... If any other man thinketh that he have whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. I circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, an Hebrew of the Hebrews, a Jew of the Jews, you might say, as touching the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. When you looked at these individuals, like Nicodemus, you would think that, okay, they're Jews, they're religious. If anyone's going to make it to heaven, it's Nicodemus. Sort of like people today that uh, most people are thinking that there are certain requirements to get to heaven. Be born into a family that's somewhat religious. Or uh, to be a part of, um, <clears throat> well, to be the, the right family line. Or even kind of be religious. 
These are things that merit the favor of God. Years ago in church history, there was a man by the name of Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards was a man who probably preached the most famous sermon in in U.S. history, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. But he didn't have a life that was all that easy. He he was in a church that uh, back in that time was a New England church. And uh, if you were going to be anything in the community, you had to be part of the church. If you want to be part of politics, you had to be part of the church. If you wanted to teach in the school, you had to be part of the church. Uh, And so you had individuals that were in the church there in Northampton where Jonathan Edwards was at. And you had individuals that thought that they were right with God because their parents were a part of the church. And as because of the fact that their parents were a part of the church, they became members of the church. And they just thought this. There was many of the members when Jonathan Edwards was preaching that they thought, I'm okay because I'm part of a church. Everything's fine. Uh, and he had individuals who thought that we would put it this way, that they were saved just because they were part of a church. Their family had been part of it, they're part of it, and they're somehow, that is what is going to make God happy. It ultimately got him thrown out of his church because there were certain members there that weren't saved and and the like that threw him out of the church, Jonathan Edwards. You know, there's some that look at good deeds, they think attendance to religious service, giving to charities, being kind to others is enough to get them into heaven. This is not what gets a person into heaven. See, Nicodemus, as you look at this story, there may have been something that you missed as you read this. It's in verse 2. It says this, uh, this Nicodemus came to Jesus by night. Now, there are some that would suggest the fact that Nicodemus came because he was afraid to be seen with Jesus. You know, that he's this religious leader that, and read in John chapter 2, has just gone into the temple and knocked over the tables that are there and driven out to those that are collecting uh, these different uh, religious taxes from individuals that weren't required in the Scripture. And, and that there would be some that would think, well, why is Nicodemus talking to him? Well, that's not the case, because you look throughout Christ's ministry, right up until he dies, uh, regularly the Pharisees are talking with Jesus in public during the day. Uh, And so it's not that he's coming by night because there is this thought that perhaps this educated teacher, because that's what Nicodemus was, he had been educated in religious schools, was perhaps seeing this uneducated Galilean. You say, what would a Galilean be? Uh, Comparison to today's society, we would say somebody that maybe is hillbilly, that type of thing. You know, come from that region of the world. Uh, you have this refined city dweller that's asking an uneducated Galilean uh, questions. That's not why it says that it is night there. It's actually an indicator of his heart that it's dark. See, the only other time in the book of John that you have uh, an indication of the time of day as far as what it is uh, during that is during the time where jesus is having what we would call the last supper where he's meeting with his disciples in the upper room and he says this uh that as he goes around the room that one of them is going to betray him 
And it finally lands upon Judas Iscariot that he's given this piece of bread and the Lord says, whatsoever thou doest, do quickly. And it says that he goes out, and here's the description. Judas Iscariot went out and it was night. That's a description, really, of what Judas Iscariot's heart is out of all the 12 apostles that are there. He's the one that hasn't put his faith in Christ. He's a, a person who's been religious and all of these things. Uh, Judas Iscariot was. He's following Christ wherever he's at. He's doing uh, good activities and miracles. But the condition of his heart, it's dark. Because he's not right with God. What you have here is a person who's a religious leader. A person that you would look at and go, hey, if there's anybody that's right with God, has got a relationship with him, it'd be Nicodemus. And John's subtle statement here when he says it's night is, no, his heart condition is just like any other sinner. Just like anybody else, his heart is not right with God. And so you have this conversation that Jesus has with Nicodemus. That gets them, we would put it on this way, the right path. You see in verse number 2, Nicodemus asks this question, Rabbi. He's actually very respectful. He didn't use the term Rabbi in that culture, uh, except for someone he respected. And he actually uses it for, for Jesus. He goes this, We know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. You've got some sort of power behind you. God's obviously with you. Uh, and so you've got to have something going on here that's religious. Uh, and we acknowledge this. And how Jesus responds is rather blunt and it's direct. We have another story later on in John chapter 4 where Jesus actually stops and talks to the individual that we know as the woman at the well and he kind of walks into that conversation. He's talking about water, drawing water, this type of thing. And he finally gets her to religious matters and then the really most important thing, does she have a relationship with God? Here with Nicodemus, he just right to the chase doesn't even really get into any sort of conversation with him he figures this man already knows some of the scripture he's heard it he's been a teacher of this uh, and so when this man says okay i know that thou art from god john uh, chapter 3 and verse 3 jesus simply answers and says unto him verily verily or we might say this this is unquestionably truth I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Except a person be born again, they cannot see the kingdom of God. Or we might say, as you find later on, that this person's not going to see heaven. Not going to get there. I mean, Nicodemus is not really looking for information he's just trying to have a conversation but the lord in one sentence sweeps away all that nicodemus stood for and demands that he be remade that something happens to him in order that he's ready for heaven that he can get there i mean the statement verily verily means that this is very important it's a truth that is most important a person will not even get a glimpse of heaven if they're not born again now this statement, born again, is an interesting term. Because for us, you think, okay, it means simply born again. It means to be born a second time. And that's how Nicodemus is going to take it. Because he doesn't want to think about the other way that in this language it could be taken. 
Because the word again can also mean this, born from above. That there's a work of God that takes place in your life. That God does something. That he, well, bears you by a work from above. See, when Nicodemus thinks about this statement, when the Lord makes this, he doesn't really want to think about the second one, and he's not really willing to think about the conversation, so he kind of goes to the ridiculous. You look at verse number four, Nicodemus responds and says, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? You know, he's kind of humoring Jesus here because he's, he's going, well, you know, that couldn't happen. No one can be born a second time. That can't happen. And to really talk about being born from above, we really don't want to talk about that. Now, as far as Jews, they didn't want to talk about being born again because that was a statement they made about everybody else. Gentiles. If a Gentile wanted to become a part of the Jewish culture, the idea was this, is that that person was born into the culture of the Jews. Nicodemus doesn't even want to suggest this as a thought that, oh, wait, I have to be born again, just like I would suggest for sinful Gentiles, that I have to do this type of thing. Okay, well, I'm going to argue the ridiculous. Nobody can do this. No one can physically be reborn. This is a ridiculous argument that you're giving me. Well, verse number five, Jesus answered almost the same way. Verily, verily, of a truth that is of extreme importance. I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. And he goes on to explain what it means to be born again by giving a statement, be born of water and of the spirit. And you see that phraseology, now some people think this, well, okay, Jesus is talking about physical birth and spiritual birth, water, physical birth, uh, spiritual birth through the Spirit. That's not what Jesus is suggesting at this point in the sermon, or his, his challenge to him. Uh, some think that maybe he's referring to John the Baptist's baptism. See, Jesus is in a time frame where John the Baptist is baptizing people in the Jordan River. And you understand what John is doing. He's getting people prepared to meet their king. He's telling them, you need to be prepared for him. And the way for them to show this is by baptism, it was showing that they were repentant of their sin. And they're looking for their Messiah. Someone suggested that Jesus say, well, you have to be born of water. You have to be baptized and then have the Spirit do something. But when Jesus says here uh, the fact that you have to be born of water and of the Spirit, it's combining some things that Nicodemus would have been familiar with. You say, what would Nicodemus be familiar with? He would have been familiar with what we call the Old Testament. And when you look at the Spirit and how his work is described in the Old Testament, it's combined with both wind and with water. His workings described this way. You look at Isaiah 40, 44 and verse 3. God makes this statement. For I will pour out water upon him that is thirsty and floods upon the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit upon thy seed and my blessing on thy offspring forever. Or Joel chapter 2 says this. It shall come to pass afterwards that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. Using this idea of water. 
And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, your young men shall see visions, and your servants, and upon the handmaids in those days will I pour out my spirit. Or in Zechariah chapter 12, I will pour out upon the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications. Ezekiel 36 verse 26 says this, a new heart will I give you, a new spirit will I put in you. I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. See, what he's saying here is that, no, you need to have a working of the Spirit. God, and when we talk about the Spirit, we're not talking about some impersonal thing. Uh, God, the Holy Spirit. Okay, God is a uh, uh, Spirit, and He's fully God when we talk about the Spirit. Um, and he's making the statement that, yes, the Spirit has to do something to you. He has to change you. God has to do a work in your life. And he describes it this way, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, okay? We have children that are born, okay? You have fleshly children. Well, if you're going to have a spiritual birth fitting a person for heaven someday, you have to have a spiritual birth. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I say unto thee, ye must be born again. You've got to have some work on you happen for you to be spiritually born, and then verse 8 describes it this way. He says, the wind. It's kind of an interesting uh, term that he uses there because the word wind is the same word that for spirit. Okay, it's the exact same word, pneumos. So we get uh, pneumonia from that terminology where you have the lungs affected, you're breathing. The word spirit can mean breath or wind. Well, here's how he describes a person being born again. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but thou cannot tell when it's, whence it has come and whither it goeth. So is everyone that is born of the spirit. What he says is this, you can't see the spirit of God. But you can see his effects on an individual. When a person has been spiritually born by God, you see things that have changed in their life. There's an effect that takes place, and it's this way. I mean, we go outside, you're on a clear day, and you're seeing the trees go back and forth. You go, well, how's that possible? Where's this thing called wind that's doing all of this, and it's having an effect on all of those trees? Can you see it? No. Is it there? Yes. Is it having impact? Yes. So it is for an individual who is born again. There's a change. You can't see uh, the Spirit as it does this, but you can see the effects of it. And so when you have uh, this individual here that Nicodemus is hearing these things, he's recognizing the fact that there's something that is going on. In verse 9, Nicodemus answered and said unto him, how can these things be? Or he's simply saying, how can this happen? How can a person be changed? How can they have the Spirit go, okay, I'm going to work on changing you, giving you new birth? Jesus said, verse number 10, art thou a master, a teacher of Israel, and knowest now not these things? Verily, verily, I say unto you, we speak that we do know and testify that we have seen and you receive it not. If I had told you earthly things and you believe not, how shall you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? No man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that hath come down from heaven, even the Son of Man, which is in heaven. He's simply saying this, 
I can give you the answer not because I'm coming from a human perspective. Jesus was fully human. He was fully God. He was born. We know this as you look at uh, the Christmas story as we describe it. He was born and his name was, as it's described in Matthew, Emmanuel, which is God with us. He came in human flesh. But what he's able to say is this, I know how this is possible for a person to be in heaven someday to be able to see the kingdom of God because it's not that I'm creating things from a human perspective. No, I have come from God. And as John 1 talks about, he is God. And he goes, I can give you an answer. And you say, well, what's the answer? It's in verse 14 and 15. How can a person have a spiritual birth how can they be born again? Verse 14, Jesus kind of gives a story we may not be familiar with. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, and whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. You know, well, why does he go and suddenly talk about Moses and what went on there with Moses? What he's referring to, and you may have this in your Bible, if not, you can take a look at this story later on. Uh, it's in Numbers chapter 21. nation of Israel there was going through the wilderness, and, and they came to complaining about certain things that were going on. They were unhappy. In fact, they were coming and, and complaining to Moses as if everything that they were having out there was his fault. And it's at that point that God sent fiery serpents through uh, the camp there, and there were certain people there that were bitten, and they were dying. It's at that point, people come and start crying to Moses and go, can you give us some help here? You know, they're just arguing with him a few minutes ago. Uh, can you give us some help here? And he goes to God, and God says simply this, take a, <coughs> excuse me, take a serpent, a bronze serpent, put it on a pole, put it up in the middle of the camp and as you look at the story a person that was in that camp that had been bitten and was dying could look at that and you could have this statement they could look and live all they had to do they didn't have to go through any sort of extreme circumstances or anything like that for these people who were dying all they had to do was to look at that curse that was lifted up on a tree and they would live and jesus says just like moses lifted that up and individuals just had to simply look and say that is the thing that will save me so it is verse number uh, 15 there uh or verse 14 even so must the son of man be lifted up Say, what's Jesus talking about? Uh, you read through the book of John, it's very clear talking about the fact that he was going to be lifted up on a cross. Uh, you have John 8 and verse 28, Jesus said unto them, when ye have lifted up the Son of Man, then ye shall know that I am he, and that I do nothing of myself, but as my Father hath taught me, I speak these things. He was speaking of his being lifted up on the cross. John 12, within the week of when he was going to die, he said this, And if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. This said he, signifying what death he should die. The people answered him, We have heard out of the law that Christ abideth forever. How sayest thou that the Son of Man must be lifted up? And who is the Son of Man? 
And the people recognize the fact that he's call, talking about a cross kind of death, and they're going, well, wait a second, we thought the Son of Man was going to live forever. How can you be talking about his death? I mean, Jesus was talking about being lifted up on a cross. You say, what was important about him being lifted up on the cross? It's because he became cursed for us who were cursed by God. You say, why are we cursed by God? Because we're sinners. We wander from God. We go our own way. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to our own way, is what Isaiah told us, that our sins separate us from our God. And you go, well, what does that mean? We're cursed. We're separated from God. Well, you go, what is this thing on the cross? Why, why does Jesus have to go on the cross? Because he took our curse, our judgment. He took the judgment of God upon him on the cross for our sins. And he did this. And that he was lifted up to die uh, as a sacrifice in our place. And you say, well, what should I do with Jesus being lifted up on the cross? The answer is verse number 15. That whosoever believeth in him, whoever puts their trust in Jesus Christ and his death on the cross for them, they come to that conclusion that they're a sinner and they need help. They put their belief, they put their trust, their confidence on him alone, should not perish. And you go, what does that mean? Be separated from God forever. But what will they have? They'll have everlasting life. Say, so what do you mean by everlasting life? What does that mean? Well, an individual who is a sinner separated from God, the Bible talks about that as being spiritual death. As such, we're all going to physically die. Our body's going to separate from our soul and spirit. But if we die in our sins, what the Scripture tells us, that there's a second death where our body, soul, and spirit will be separated from God forever in a place called hell. We'll be separated. That's why it's a second death. To be separated from God is death. To be with Him forever is life. And when Jesus says here, if a person puts their faith in him, they should not perish. That means they won't be separated from God forever. No, they'll have life eternal because they'll be with me forever. If they die physically in this life, they'll be in my presence forevermore. They'll never escape my presence. They'll be with me where I am. I mean, it's at that point where John kind of cuts off the story there and gives a commentary on what Jesus has just described. You say, well, why did this have to happen? Well, verse 16, for God so loved the world. It's not that God's up there going, I can't wait to be separated from those people down there. Those ones that I created, I gave life, I gave them the world to live in. No, God loves sinners just like us. He gave his only begotten son. You go, what does it mean by he was begotten? Was Jesus born sometime? Did he have start? And the answer is no, he's always been God. He's been in eternity past till now and will be forever the idea of begotten is the idea of unique his only son that he gave his only son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life verse 17 god sent not his son into the world to condemn or judge the world but that the world through him might be saved now, jesus didn't come in to judge people the first time now you read revelation that there is a point where he will be the world's judge but the first time he came, no, to be a savior. 
to save people, to give them the hope of life eternal. And a person that believes on God, verse 18, is not condemned, is not judged. But he that believeth not is condemned or judged already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. You say, why do people not want Jesus Christ on the cross? I mean, the description's given here. It's because individuals are living in darkness. They rather uh, would live in their own evil deeds. Look at verse 19. This is the condemnation that light, Jesus is coming to the world, and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. I mean, when Jesus comes into the world and he's saying, you must accept me, that's light. You say, what's light's effect like? Well, uh, many of you have teenage children. And most of them don't get up really, really fast. And you sometimes have places to go. And so what do you do? The first method of getting them to move is to go and flip on the light switch. And what is their immediate reaction to that? Oh, I love the light. I'm so happy to see it. No, it's immediately the yanking of covers and turning from that. You know, that's how many people react when you say, listen, you're a sinner, you need Jesus Christ. And they're like, no, uh-uh, not me. I'm okay, I'm doing fine. No need for any help. I'm, I'm all right. And they turn from this. But what you see for some people is they eventually adjust to the light and they see it a little bit more and then they begin to understand this one Jesus is the one that they need. This one who died on the cross and came into this world because he loved us is what I need. And will you say, what do they do? They put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Now we think about this in, in relation to even this morning, what we're going to have here at the end of the service here is a baptism. You realize this whole passage has said absolutely nothing about baptism. You say, okay. You realize baptism is something that is not needed for salvation? You say, how do you know that? Uh, I can give you an illustration. Jesus was dying on the cross with two individuals that during their crucifixion are, first of all, mocking Jesus. They're both taking part in this. They're making a joke of him. And it's over the time of Jesus being on the cross that one of these thieves realizes we're not dealing with your average criminal. No, we're dealing as he listens to all the conversations that are going on there, that he's dealing with someone who's considered to be divine, that some consider to be God, that some are calling him the son of God. That this one is not responding like people normally do at crucifixions. I mean, the normal responses of people at crucifixions was they kick and spit at people as they went by and the like because they were dying and being mocked. No, Jesus is not doing that. In fact, he's, he's making this statement, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. They have no idea what they're doing by putting me on this cross here. And this man finally, in his uh, listening to all of this, tells the other criminal to stop mocking Christ and then makes the statement that he would be remembered by Jesus when Jesus entered into his kingdom. And you say, well, what happened for that man? Jesus said to him, today thou shalt be with me in paradise. 
Now think about this. Did that man have an opportunity to get off the cross and get baptized? The answer is no. You say, was he in heaven? He is. You say, why, did, why was he in, in, in heaven? It's because of his faith in this one who was on the cross. See, what we're about to do here is just simply a testimony. Baptism is a testimony of a person whose life has been transformed because they've met Christ. When you read the Scriptures, when a person meets Christ, uh, it's described this way, that old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. That that individual has become a new creature. Something's gone on. You say, because they've, they've reformed themselves? No, because God has done something for them. God's changed them. God has, we put it this way, saved them. Baptism is merely a testimony. As you see, uh, we'll have the baptism in water here. It's just simply this. A person going into the water and back out again is just simply this. You'll hear me make the statement, buried in the likeness of his death, raised to newness of life. Uh, What you're symbolizing is that Jesus Christ died for me, was buried in the ground, but he rose again to give me life eternal. And a person that's getting baptized is just simply saying, hey, God's done something for me. God saved me. Not that I've done anything. No, the one who died for me, I'm giving testimony that he's my savior and I identify with him. But it has nothing to do with saving because saving uh, and the opportunity of heaven comes through just simply faith in what? The one who's lifted up on the cross. Believing that his sacrifice is what can save you, that person has life eternal. God does the changing after that. The Spirit comes along and changes an individual and makes them a different person. New things are going on in their life, uh, and that's what salvation is. And so the question for you today is this, uh, have you been born again? Born a second time. That you have come to the point in your life where you said, I have nothing to give, but this one on the cross, he died for me. He died to save me. Have you put your faith in him? It's that simple. Look to him and live. And that's what salvation is. That's what Nicodemus finally gathered. He was a religious leader, but you get to the end of the book of John, and he's a follower of Jesus Christ. He finally goes, this is the one I need, not my religion uh, that I've been doing and all of this. I need this Savior. And he believed on that. And so he must be born again. Have you put your faith in Jesus Christ? I trust that you have. And if you haven't, please, afterwards, uh, talk to me. There are a lot of people here that can answer some of those questions, but he is the only way for you to get to heaven. There's no other way. Lord, we thank you for this conversation that you had with Nicodemus, a religious individual, a nice man, but a man who was still uh, sinful in heart. He needed, needed you to do something in his own heart and life. He needed to be born again. So for all of us in this room, we, we need to be born again. Lord, there are many in this room that have had that experience of putting their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. That they've experienced the fact that you've done a work in them after that faith that they've put in you, that you've changed things in their life, that you've done things, and, and that you have, well, given them the hope of life eternal. 
They've got a confidence that uh, they'll be with you one day in glory. It's not because of their good works and their religion and their family or anything like that. No, it's because of the fact that they have put their faith in the one on the cross. Lord, we rejoice in uh, Jesus' sacrifice. As we even heard this morning, it's an amazing grace, an amazing gift that you've given to us, undeserving sinners, that you're willing to save us just merely through the gift of your Son on the cross. So Lord, we love you. We thank you for your goodness to us. If there's some here today that still haven't grasped this point yet, uh, we pray that they would and that they would come to faith upon Jesus on the cross. He truly saves. We love you, Lord. We thank you and praise you in your son's name. Amen.